found myself in prison actually by the age of twenty, and um, and and it was there really that 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 the real drive for freedom, the real sort of I need to see the world, I need to be free. Um, that's where it really came from. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and episode 63 with Steph Jevons. Steph is a round-the-world motorcyclist who retook control of her life after drug addiction and a prison sentence saw her on a downward spiral. In this episode, we talk about addiction, Steph's time in prison, reformation and starting fresh. We also talk about why it's important to just go for it and see what happens and what it's like traveling the world alone as a woman. If you enjoy this episode, then you can grab a copy of Steph's book, Home by Seven, on Steph's website, stephjevons.com. Last thing to mention before we kick off is to push you towards Sidetrack magazine. No one's paying me or bribing me to do it. I just believe in it. It's an incredible, honest, authentic publication that champions a lot of the same things as this podcast. Okay, over to Steph Jevons. a good place to start um can you just introduce yourself talk about your life where you came from and how you've ended up where you are now okay well i'm steph jevons i am uh i live in north wales beautiful part of the world absolutely love it i've been all over the world and still love wales so uh it's one of my favorite places I've done quite a bit of adventuring. Um, I'm what they call an adventure rider, uh, which is which is always a bit of a, a bit of a funny one as to what we call ourselves, or an overlander. Um, so, I uh, best I'm best known for becoming the first person to circumnavigate the globe and ride a motorbike on all seven continents. That's a pretty good claim to fame. It's not bad, is it? I quite like that. <laughs> I mean, I'm known for lots of other things as well, but but not all quite quite as uh, quite good a title as that. <laughs> well, go on. So, what do you mean by that? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I mean, uh, yeah, no, motorbiking is what I'm generally known for. I've ju- I've just written a book with with a bit more of my history as well, which which goes into um to to, to a few darker adventures. Um, so. Uh, so yeah and and that's quite weird actually because because since I've written the book I, I mean I I got a bit of a name for myself in the motorbiking world if you like is the best way to describe it uh for doing what I did and um and then I wrote the book which came out with all the other stuff and uh and, and in all seriousness I thought that was actually quite an important thing to do was to was to give all the good and the bad and the gritty and and the reason why I do these things in the first place stems from a, another life in a in a way yeah, and please feel free. Like, w- tell me about that other life. 
I, uh, when I was a, in my late teens, I got addicted to drugs and um, not just any drug. So I was like a Marks and Spencer's advert. This is no ordinary drug. Um, in the late 80s and early 90s, there was a, there was an influx of, of heroin um, hitting uh, places like Wales and, and, and the poor areas of Scotland and that kind of thing quite hard. And, and I became a, a, a part of that pandemic, if you like, um, and a victim of that pandemic. And although I blame nobody but myself and uh, found myself in a pretty dark place found myself in prison actually by the age of 20 and um and and it was there really that 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 the real drive for freedom the real sort of i need to see the world i need to be free um that's where it really came from um although i suppose the fact you know, getting myself into prison in the first place was also maybe a bid for freedom. The, the reasons why I ended up, you know, taking drugs, all that kind of thing, it was all kind of there, part of my personality in a way. Um, searching for something, you know, I, I guess I was always searching for something. Um, uh, but but the, uh, the travel and the, I've got to see the world, I've got to get out of here, really came from being locked down. So that real... Um, that moment, it was almost an epiphany, you know, that that said, I, I'm going to do, I'm going to travel. It didn't, wasn't exactly, I'm going to ride on all, all seven continents with a motorbike. But, but yeah, that, that's where the seed was planted. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So what was your early childhood like? What were you like as a young person? I was always getting into trouble, I suppose, when I was younger as well, always searching for something. I grew up, I was born in Canada and, and raised in Wales. And um, I grew up in a, in a sort of a farming community, quite a rural area. Great place to grow up as a kid. I got to do horse riding, got to do some pretty cool stuff, but it was never quite enough. I was always looking for some kind of excitement. It was, you know, these days you look at kids and they've got, got uh you know parents are so much more sort of switched on i suppose so they keep their kids busy they're always in classes or they're always doing this or they're doing that and i'm like wow you know um we were kind of just sent out to go and find something to do and then called you know and it was a very rural area so your parents would just shout from the from when dinner was ready and we'd be in the forestry building something or 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 you know doing something we shouldn't i suppose and um and it was there was a lot of freedom in a sense, uh, probably a lot more than there is now. These days, I think childhood is much more structured, um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. But for me, I was always looking for some way of getting into trouble. I suppose, um, yeah, and I, and I found it too. <laughs> yeah. So, how do you end up going from the rural community to you know the drugs and and the problems? Well, you know, I, I was always, like I said, I was always, I was always looking for for, for something. Um, I wanted to leave home very early, um, so I did, and I went off to work as a zookeeper. Uh, I, I got my dream job as a, as a zookeeper when I when I first left home, and um, got myself an, a, a, a bedsit kind of thing. You know, of sixteen, I was on a YTS scheme, um, so I was getting thirty five quid a week. Um, training to be a zookeeper got this really cool job i was i was partying at night in the in the um in the local pubs and the local to the local rock bands and and loving life and then i got pregnant and um i ended up uh as 
single mother, still still working, still doing all these things, but I was a single mother and I got postnatal depression. Wow, we're going very dark very quickly here. But but this is the these are the facts, you know, and this from from this led led many other things. But um but I, I ended up uh sort of uh well I, I met a guy a bit a bit later on whilst I was suffering from postnatal depression. Turns out he was a really nice guy. Let me just put this straight. He was a really nice guy who happened to be addicted to heroin. Now, I didn't know that when I met him. I found that out uh, a few months down the line. And quite, you know, I was quite naive. I was only 18 then. And so I was a single mum, you know, uh, 18. had gone through a fair amount already and um, was suffering from postnatal depression, now dating a, a heroin addict. So it was, it was rough times, you know, and... Um, I didn't really understand the mental health uh, stuff behind it. I just thought I'm a terrible person. You know, I, I I'm just didn't know what postural depression was. I just felt, you know, um, that that I was a terrible person who didn't uh, have all the right motherly instincts. Um, and so eventually uh, uh, we split up when I found out he was on drugs, but then I went back to him because he lived next door. And eventually the drugs came back into the house. And uh, and, and one night um, I tried it and, and it's the classic case of mother's little helper, I suppose. And, and I actually found that, that uh, it was it made me feel more human. It made me feel more connected to the world and to people and um, and actually had this, put this warm, it's heroin is not a sort of drug that kind of makes you get high in the sense of, yeah, let's go clubbing, all that kind of thing. It's complete opposite, but it's actually this warm feeling of uh, being able to love and, and to be loved. And it, it actually just made me feel like a normal human being, I guess. Uh, and it helped me with my depression, with my personal depression. So, um, my, you know, for for a couple of years, uh, it, it became the norm. Um, all my my dreams went to one side. All my um, everything else kind of just, you know, I carried on working. It wasn't like uh, it, it wasn't like I was injecting in some squat somewhere, as people would probably imagine it when you hear the word heroin, uh, and it had different connotations at the time as well. But uh, it was, um, you know, we just lived a normal life. I was just getting thinner, eating less, and and um, and getting on with it. And then eventually, I got caught with with a load of drugs and um, and got sent to prison. So. Um, and that was probably the best thing that could have happened to me because many people around me died around that time and uh, it was probably the best thing that could have happened, you know? Yeah, and I mean, thanks for being so honest about it because obviously it's not maybe an easy thing to, you know, go into detail of, but... Um, and then <laughs> it almost sounds like the worst question in the world, but what was prison like? Well, it was... A lot worse than it seems to be now. Um, uh, there, there weren't any PlayStations or TVs or anything like that. And it was um, a women's prison is probably worse than a man's, uh, especially for somebody like me who who never really connected with women at, at that time. You know, I was always sort of a bit of a, uh, you know, a, 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 a lad. I, I connected with guys more better than I could with women. I, I sort of just, just felt more of a... a a relationship with them, a connection with them. And so to be thrown in with a load of hormonal, drug-starved women <laughs> and not being able to get out, you know, not being able to get fresh air, 
not being able to sort of do stuff when you want to do it, tell, being told what to eat, when to sleep. You had sort of 20 minutes for your, for your bath. Um, and there was always somebody banging on the door or, or whatever. And um, I just wanted to be locked in my cell and left alone. And, and they wouldn't even let me do that because it was like, no, you've got to get out for association or you've got to do this or, or whatever. And um and of course, the the heroin withdrawal was was pretty tough too. So, dealing with all that, you you realise you're at your lowest apps absolute lowest point uh, you could possibly be. Um, and from that, somewhere you you pick yourself up and and uh, yeah, it, it's a very cold, very hard place. And 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 I could still get drugs in there, so I I got off it physically, but mentally, I was still connected to those drugs, and. I knew sort of about halfway through my sentence, I thought, look, if you don't start saying no when it's available, you're never going to be free of this. And I can remember saying no for the first time. And and uh, that was a, a real pivotal point for me. And that made me realize that, wow, there is a strength there. You can do it. And uh, and I never looked back and I, I never touched drugs, uh, you know, I never touched heroin since and, and I never... Uh, um, I never wanted it again. It was just one of those moments, you know, um, that, that that not many people who get addicted to heroin ever find. Um, so in, in one sense, I was lucky that, to be caught in a way, you know. Yeah, no, it's easy to kind of look back and regret things, but equally it's kind of, you know, we have these moments that seem horrendous at the time, like being arrested, but actually they're, you know, saving graces. Yeah, without a doubt, and it was—it's what drives me. Is it's—I kind of make jokes about it, and it used to be that only a few friends knew about my history, about my past, you know, because I moved moved on from that. We're talking twenty-five years ago, and I've had a whole new life and all sorts of things since. <laughs> and talking about it now is so weird because I kept it so quiet for so many years, and now it's like I've written it in a book. I'm talking about it on podcasts. It's like whoa! I, I worked so hard to get away from all that, and then suddenly it's like, but that's such a cool thing because it means to me that I've genuinely left it behind. You know, it's just like, do you know what? I've moved so far away from that that I can talk about it like it's somebody else. And um, and and I think it's important to share it because especially, especially the mental health issue side of it because so many people go through things so quietly. They've got issues. And since I started talking about it, when I first opened up to, to tell this out, this story in public, um, it was too, I, I chose... Uh, a, a, a local business network um, and there was police officers there doing talks there was uh, a magistrate there was a load of local you know business women and, and men and it was such and I decided to sort of talk, stand up and do this presentation and include my history in it for the first time ever it was the most frightening thing ever and and the people stood up and, and applauded me at the end and I'm not sure which bit they were applauding for but I think it's important to share that and not just say hey look at me you know yeah yeah I've got a cool life this is what we all do on Facebook isn't it surely you know we, we sit down there on Facebook saying social media saying look how cool my life is and those who are struggling see nothing but the cool stuff and I think it's important for us to share all of it um and it certainly helped me you know and I mean like I said I my friends used to make jokes about it the, the ones who knew about it and, and it was you know uh it, it was one of those things that but but it was still a secret and I thought no I don't want this to be a secret and now it's great because people who knew me as the motorbike 
woman or whatever um, can now also make jokes and join in because it's it's gone. It's history. It's my past, and and um, and and, it, and it's such a liberating feeling to to have it out there and people accepting you anyway. And, and that's what people do. We do accept other people's flaws if only we're allowed. You know. Yeah. Was it a wholly positive response? Yeah, I've certainly nobody said anything to my face. <laughs> um, yeah, surprisingly, it's quite an emotional thing to 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 get uh, to get such a positive response. You know, I've got um, I've got a good friend who's a who's a prison officer. He used to be a prison governor. He's retired prison governor. And we sat, we, we, you know, I, I did a podcast the other week with, with a, an ex-police officer, you know, and, and we're sat chatting away. We're, we're all on a level, you know, we're all, we're all doing our thing. And um, uh, I didn't know, I didn't get any, any negative from it. No, nothing at all. It was frightening when I put the book out and, um, and that went out first of all. I've been very honest in the beginning of the book and about my emotions and, and, the shit that happened, you know, and um, and when I put it out, I thought, oh my god, I can't take it back now. That's it, you know. My, my sponsors, um, <laughs> they're all gonna know, and and I suddenly had this almost almost a panic attack of like, wow, you've done it now, you fool, you've done it again. What are you? Why do you put yourself in these positions? But uh, t- the response I got was amazing. Yeah, and it's like you've said, I mean, it's liberating, right? That, you know, once it's out there, it's done. There, you know, no more secrets. Everything's done and dusted and out there. So, um, sorry to head back to it, but <laughs> we'll get past this in a minute. Um, how long were you in prison and what was the buildup like um, coming towards the epiphany and what was that moment? So I got sentenced to three and a half years. Um, I, I served 21 months, which is half that time. And um, the epiphany was was me sitting in my prison cell, looking out of, of the, the cell window at a, a tree. I think it was an oak tree. And in my, daydreaming and trying to drown out the noises of the the screaming women. It's like being locked in with a load of chimpanzees. In that particular prison, it was. Not all of them. They're not all like that. But this one was a very, as probably you'd imagine, a crazy women's prison to be. Um, And I was trying to drown out the noises. I was staring at this tree, and I imagined it as a baobab tree. And... I don't know why. It's just, just you know, it was like a daydream. And um, I said to myself, you know, I'm going to go and find me that baobab tree. It sounds like I've made this up, but it's so true. It really did happen. Uh, and I, and I said, I'm going to find me that baobab tree. I'm going to go traveling. I'm going to go to Africa. I'm going to, go, you know. Um, and it was just sort of a promise I made to myself. And I literally took out a pe- my my diary from from my um, from from my wardrobe and wrote uh, down to do a to do list. I'm still a to do list girl. And uh, and I wrote get off drugs, get out of prison, travel the world. And, uh, <laughs> um, and that was it. That, that was that was it. Amazing. And then what was, I think you ticked them all, but I guess most will get there. Um, what was it like walking out of, the, it's the cliche question, but what was it like walking through the gate and back into the real world? Um. It it was bizarre. I didn't really know how to feel. It's one of those things that you don't really. It doesn't really sink in until afterwards. I suppose it's a bit like uh, when you achieve something 
after you've been pushing, say, the end of an event or riding around the world or, or getting to the top of Everest or something, you, you get to that point and you go, oh, okay, well, that's that then. And and um, and you move on. And for me, I... Now, I'd gone to an open prison when I when I before the end of my sentence, which means that I could go out and work and um, start to sort of reintegrate into into normal society. And they let me go and work in a in a factory, which was pretty cool because there was guys there. I could I could sort of talk to I could have a giggle with just a proper normal giggle. Uh, We could listen to music as we were packing boxes and things. And um, I ended up becoming very friendly with with one of the guys there who I later moved in with after after I left prison and um he he picked me up from from the prison and uh with some flowers and things and and it was just all a bit bizarre it was <laughs> it was quite bizarre but uh, I barely remember it to be honest I barely remember it it was but I that was in York or just outside York and I ended up moving to York for for f- about five years um I got reconnected with my son thankfully he was with my parents um who uh you know who thankfully took him in and, and brought him to see me and that kind of thing he was young enough of course that he didn't understand at all um and uh and then we we you know we my son and I moved back in together and then and then we eventually we moved in with the with the new boyfriend and we 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 bought a house together and we lived in York for 5 years and then and then it was time for me to move on again so yeah yeah that's how things play out i guess but how how do you get from well i guess you've you've sort of hinted at it but the moment you leave prison to deciding to you know twist the throttle and set off to go and travel around the world well bikes uh, you know bikes are, have always been in the blood i suppose for me my parents were into bikes and um my f- first boyfriend uh, he he had a motorbike and and as soon as i got out of prison i, I passed my test and uh, i couldn't do much riding then i i still had this dream to travel and over the next sort of 20 years or so i, I traveled a lot with my son we went to Thailand together we went to Kenya together we, we saw you know we saw that baobab and um but and over the years I just I, I kept working I was many things I was a mortgage advisor I was a human resources manager um I worked really hard I bought a couple of houses I, I moved around a bit I moved back to Wales eventually with with my son and um and then when he reached but of course, I had my son to look after, and he was my priority. Which, um, because you know, once the drugs wore off, the overwhelming guilt kicked in, and, and of course, obviously, the, the postnatal depression had long gone. And, and so, when I got out, we built a proper relationship, and, and we had a sort of a uh, what I dreamed of, which for a while, which was just a normal, if you like. Um, uh, life, you know, uh, going to work, coming back, feeding the the the, the child and the dog, and <laughs> you know, growing a vegetable patch and all that kind of thing, and and um, we had a pretty normal life. And then in two thousand and eight, um, and we did that bit of travel, but there was always this itch for me uh, that, that that needed scratching, and it was that sort of baobab shaped itch, you know, so uh, that I'd promised myself I was going to see the whole world, you know, so. Um, Anyway, we reality means that you can't just go off and do that. And in 2008, I was a mortgage advisor living in North Wales uh, with my son still. And um, the 
the, the financial crisis hit. And so it wasn't a good time to be a mortgage advisor. Uh, and so I set up a new business, uh, teaching people to off-road ride, to ride motorbikes off-road. Now, I'd, I did a... Um, a trip, a charity ride in South Africa with a load of friends about, well, there's about 80 of us. We did a charity ride across South Africa, all off-road, absolutely petrifying. And But it was that moment, again, one of those pivotal moments where I'd said, right, well, let's go and do this trip. I've got no idea how to ride motorbikes off-road. I only ride on the road. Went off and did it, had an amazing time, came back and set up an off-road school up and, uh, <laughs> and said, uh, right, you know, and I, I set up with a with a quite a well-known a motorbike rider who'd done some training for me and um we set up a business together we got sponsored by honda and very quickly they gave us 30 bikes and a four by four it was all just a whirlwind of, of a time and um and then five years after that the the partnership the business partnership kind of disintegrated and uh, i had to decide whether to try and carry on with the business and go a different way or to just follow my dreams and and uh and head off around the world and my son was 20 by then and so i went sod it i'm off <laughs> but that's an amazing it's such a different story than the one i'm not used to hearing because that makes it sound like they're not interesting but often you hear about epiphanies and you kind of hear that I had an epiphany so I climbed Everest or I had an epiphany so I rode an ocean yours is it's wonderful because you had the epiphany you realized you needed to change your life but it took another what was it 15 16 years before you set off to go and go around the world yeah over 20 years before I actually left on on that trip yeah so in the before obviously we'll get to that but what sort of adventures were you going on you know between coming out of prison and and setting off around the world well um i did a lot of sort of backpacking with my son so um we went and did well i say a lot i mean whenever we could i mean i was uh, having to work and and raise my son and we had a dog and and all that kind of thing mortgage to pay but we you know we did some trips to thailand um and and to africa and um they were all just sort of cheap backpacking trips really um the the big adventure was that was the off-road trip um to to south africa which was the real challenge you know that was that was the one where we started getting a, a real challenge involved um and it was challenging it was absolutely petrifying most of the time you're going why am i doing this this is terrifying i'm gonna die and uh, you know i just wish i hadn't wasn't doing this and then at the end you go Woo! survived let's do it again so that <laughs> it's like the, the building blocks you know and uh um and then with the off-road school i started running my own tours so I, I started taking people to morocco doing desert tours in morocco um and that was pretty cool again we, we took a load of customers having i'd never been to morocco uh, and we took a load of customers i worked out a route from google earth and um and we took some previous customers and we said look uh, we've never been. This is a recce, but if you want to come along, we could do with using you as sort of guinea pigs, and um, you know you'll have to pay, but you know not too much, sort of thing. And they were up for it. They had the right sense of humour, and and um, and they they chipped in, and and we went for it, and and did the recce, and that was probably the best tour that we did because it was a you know a real adventure for all of us. Um, and then we we repeated that a few times. Um, and then I became a support truck driver for uh, another tour 
motorbike tour guide um, who was taking people across Africa, sorry, across America, across the States. Uh, He'd take them coast to coast and back again. So I became his support truck driver and and looked after all the bikers there. Uh, And it was um, shortly after that that I I, I went off on, on on my big trip. You've definitely ticked some things off the list, haven't you? <laughs> and I've done a few since as well. You know, just before lockdown, I managed to get a few more, a few more adventures in as well. But it's so addictive, isn't it? Once you, once you know, once you start, once you've sort of popped that adventure cherry, that's it. There's, there's no going back. You can't. You always, you almost ruin yourself. You're always looking for for that next adventure. You know, so, so that's been me. Yeah, that, that you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still always looking for it. Yeah, and well, we'll definitely come to back to that towards the end. I think because. Yeah, I think something that's that's something a lot of us struggle with maybe is the, like the law of diminishing returns, um, which you know is relevant to cycling or um, riding motorbike around the world. Sorry, and I suppose it's probably time for me to ask you to tell me that story. Okay, um, well, I, I set off in twenty fourteen, um, and I said I'd take eighteen months, and. I said I was going to ride on all seven continents, and I had no idea how I was going to do that. Um, I had a vague idea, but I, I couldn't get to Antarctica. There was there was nobody would agree to take me, but I just left and and hoped for the best, and and decided to sort of figure out along the way, and um, and so off I went on my two fifty cc motorbike, which is not big. Although more people these days are taking big trips on small bikes because it does make sense. Um, But at the time, everybody just thought I was crazy. I didn't really believe that I was ever going to do it. I was just enjoying the planning. I quite like planning. Um, And then suddenly the day came and I I was off and and off I went. And and it took me four years in the end. Um, Got back exactly four years later, uh, having having done it. So I, I started off going through Europe. Uh, which was probably one of the most terrifying bits because it was the start, you know, and I, and I was just trying to sort of get used to um, uh, the, the being on my own, camping on my own, um, trusting people, which is a big thing. You use a lot of energy uh, with distrust, I think. And, and then once you start learning to relax and trust people, then life gets a lot easier. Um, and getting into Eastern Europe, uh you know, it was just all so new. And I can remember some kids coming up to me at one point. I was on the side of the road making a roll-up. And um, and, and these kids coming up to me and me going, oh, you know, and thinking, what, what do they want? What do they want? You know, and it's like, calm down. And and everywhere I went was just so bizarre and, and different that um, – that it was it was quite exhausting, and then I, I got into Iran, and and that was completely different again. And I felt like I had to sort of learn how to behave. I was like, what you know, what what's expected of me here, and, and all that kind of things. Because of course, I drew a lot of attention as a, as a woman on a motorbike. Um, uh, but it just got easier, and people kept saying, "I don't know how you do this," and and. For me, it just became what I did. Um, it was a way of life. After traveling for for so long, it just becomes a way of life rather than a journey, doesn't it? And uh, the bit that really intrigues me—I mean, I'm sure there's—you know—there's so many stories you could tell from different places, and hopefully, we'll try and dig a few out. But how does it take four years? <laughs> 
<laughs> That's what my parents asked because they were looking after my dog at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and said, will you go to the dog for 18 months? They were like, well, go on then. <laughs> um, well, four years, I mean, I did, I did uh, what, 74,000 miles and 54 countries on a 250cc, you know, although as my mate keeps pointing out, um, uh, there was a unicyclist that did it faster than me. <laughs> so I've got no excuse, but I really wanted it to take longer. I always thought that would be a success story if it did take longer than I'd planned because financially it would mean that I'd managed to make it somehow make it work, even though I didn't even have enough money for, eight, for 18 months. Um, and that I was enjoying it and, and that I was taking my time and not rushing to get home. And, and I didn't, and I didn't want to. And, and um, there were times when I really did want to start rushing but then in, in those cases I kind of just pulled myself up and said look there's no point rushing because you because you get this sort of over stimulation I think after a while don't you at times where you can go well South America is a prime example I, I just got back from Antarctica I'd had this massive high followed by a big low I was like oh god how is how how is life ever going to be that good again and then I'm traveling through the most beautiful one of the most beautiful parts of the world going oh yeah another volcano oh look another stunning you know glacier or, or whatever and not taking it in and I was like well should I rush home or should I should I stop and descend and, and sort of lock myself in a dark room until I can appreciate what's out there again. Um, and, and that's exactly what I did. I locked myself in a dark room. And, and then I slowed down. And uh, and I took my time. And then when I got to Canada, I had a few injuries. I'd, I'd crashed, in, crashed the bike in Colombia, had a damaged shoulder. That caused more issues with my back and my neck. Um, by the time I got to, to, well, to America, I couldn't move my arm. Um, beyond the bars um and then i got treatment in canada and, and then winter was coming and i thought right and, and i ended up staying in Canada. i was in canada for about a year altogether uh before moving on to africa so and the last continent so so yeah for four years it could have been eight years really i mean i, I could have made it eight i feel still feel like i've rushed a lot of it um uh so i, I feel like i've had a bite-sized piece of so many places that i'd like to go back to yeah, it's nice to hear you say that. I mean, it's a big, wide world and, you know, each to their own. Um, this is becoming a bit of a theme for this podcast season, but, you know, racing is one thing and when it's called racing, but otherwise, why rush? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong, like you said, racing is one thing and there's nothing wrong with that. If, if that's your mission, if that's your thing, why not, you know? Um, uh, but, but yeah, but at the same time, you know, some people think, oh, why, why have an agenda? You know, I had an agenda. I, my, I, I was on a mission. It wasn't just to wander aimlessly. I wanted to ride on all seven continents. I wanted to create a circle. Um, and some people might might sort of say, well, you know, what? why not? It's, it's far cooler to go out there without any agenda and just travel and wander aimlessly. It sounds cool, and I'd quite like to do it, but... At the same time, for me, I needed a mission. I needed a goal. I needed something to work towards. And and I think in the toughest times that I had, I probably would have just gone home if I hadn't have had that goal to, to focus on. So, yeah, each their own. Yeah, forgive the bluntness of the question, but reflecting on it, how much 
were you doing it solely for you and how much did you feel like you had something to prove? Well, something to prove uh, is partly for me, I think. Uh, there was an element of that, but it was proving something to myself. Um, certainly not to anybody else because, um, no, I, I mean, it's just something that's always been in my head to to to, to want to, to, I don't know, yeah, just just... Am I? I really wanted to know. Am I the sort of person that could do this? Um, you know, uh, for starters, am I the sort of person that could cope on her own? That's why I had to go on my own because a I don't always play well with others. You know, <laughs> for certainly for that amount of time, it was a totally selfish trip. You know, I I wanted to 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 go out there and see how strong I was, see how capable I was, see how you know, and I wanted to be able to 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 plan on my own and do things my way and and there are downsides to that but but definitely no regrets on that and and proving proving something to myself was definitely part of it um i couldn't have let myself go home because of that you know um because it would have felt like a failure i suppose although i always tell other people that you know going home part way through a trip or an adventure is not failure um if you decide, if you discover that it's not for you, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. And I've spoken to many people, I've met many people on the road who did decide it wasn't for them. And don't knock that, you know, it's, it takes a strength to, to sort of stop and say it's not for me. <laughs> Maybe I just wasn't that strong. I, I had to, I had to see it through. Um, but it, it was something that had been in my head a long time. So, yeah. Yeah. And sometimes we just, I mean, had enough is a funny phrase, like it's seen as a negative, but sometimes you can kind of go, yeah, that was good. Kind of ready for home and a cup of tea now, actually. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And 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 I'll say it's yeah, nothing, nothing wrong with that at all, is it? <laughs> so I slightly piqued my interest. What did you do in Canada for a year? Oh, I did all sorts. Well, because I, I was born in Canada, thankfully I, they couldn't throw me out, so that was that was one good uh, bonus. But. Um, I had a lot of treatment for my back and my shoulder. I had a lot of um, stem cell treatment so and uh, prolotherapy. So they were injecting things into my joints for quite a long time, which was excruciatingly painful. Um, and uh, and I, uh, as I started recuperating I and, and winter came, I started doing some winter sports and things like that. So I, I did some walking and some cross-country skiing and, um, and then I got to have a go on um, what oh what do they call it? It's a, a Yeti MX, which is a converted dirt bike, which they put like a a, chair, a, a conversion kit on it, so it becomes like a a, a skidoo or a, or a jet ski thing, you know. But 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 a motorbike, so it's just a single track. Uh, so it's got a track on the back, like a caterpillar track on the back, and a, and a ski on the front. <laughs> <laughs> and I went with the uh, with the engineer, the, the the designer of that, and went off into the mountains and, and had an amazing experience. That was one cool thing. I also t- went with two rally drivers uh, up to Tuk 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 uh, in the Arctic Circle, uh, up the ice roads. Before uh, they they've now built a road up there, and the, the ice road is no more. But um, but yeah, we 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 got to take two two Nissan Titan trucks up there to to test them out for a, for a magazine article and um, and I camped at minus thirty. I don't know. I don't know if that's uh, extreme for 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 many people, but it is for me. <laughs> wow, what am I doing here? Minus thirty. Yeah, minus minus thirty is pretty cold. 
It's pretty cold, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was great. Canada was great. I absolutely fell in love with the place. There was a place called Caslow, a little town um, up near near the edge of the Rockies, and I absolutely fell in love with it. Um, so, I, you know, I keep keep thinking one day I'm going to go back there and open a sanctuary for, for sad bears or something. I don't know. <laughs> Next mission. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a great way to, you know, move on from motorbikes and just <laughs> when you look back on the whole trip, what what are the highlights? Highlights, well, so many highlights, I suppose. But um, well, you know, Antarctica landing on Antarctica was was definitely a highlight. Um, obviously, um, it was something that people had said. I couldn't do it was it was Antarctica for crying out loud and um and it was it was uh it took so much effort to get there that it you know it was it was gonna be had to well it had to be one of those moments although like I said there are times where you get to that point that you've been working towards and then you go hmm is that it but Antarctica was not like that at all I I, I remember sitting on a rock there at one point and just looking around and having a pure in the now moment you know it's just like past future not relevant now is the only important thing and um i just felt so connected uh, it, it was such a cool experience and you know um yeah at, at that point i felt like i could do anything you know like ah, i could do absolutely anything bring it on you know it was just so empowering really cool but what a beautiful place um it was more dreamlike than I dreamed of, if that makes sense. It was just so beautiful. Absolutely loved it. And, of course, I got to make, meet some cool people there, like the uh, Ukrainian scientists uh, who were, they saw us with a, you know, they, they heard that there was a woman with a motorbike in Antarctica. And they were just like, a woman with a motorbike? I'm not sure which was more cool, the the, the motorbike or the woman. And they <laughs> and they invited us. They invited us to the base and said, "Bring the bike on." And so we took the bike off again and, and rode around there, and then got stupidly drunk until like three o'clock in the morning, um, and, and then tried to get back in the Zodiac and get back on the boat at three in the morning, having drunk several uh, homemade um, vodkas. You know, so. <laughs> With five thousand year old ice cubes, um, and uh, yeah, so that oh god, that had to be a highlight for sure. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, but uh, actually, a lot of the a lot of the highlights for me are the deserty areas. I mean, obviously, Antarctica is a desert, but uh, Atacama as well. Um, I love the desert. I love the. I love the being alone in the desert thing. Um, you know, I'm not that hardcore really. I. I, I um, I don't know. I don't. I don't go around, uh, you know, killing and skinning my own my own food or anything like that. I usually carry laughing cow and a tin of tuna and an avocado. I <laughs> I have a Leatherman knife that actually I got invited to the Leatherman anniversary, twenty um, fifth anniversary of Leatherman, and Tim Leatherman was there. They invited me there for some reason. I've no idea why. And uh, they they mentioned all these amazing people who'd like cut their own arm off to save their life. One guy had cut through something to and dragged himself five miles, having saved himself with his leather, you know, with broken hips and there's some climber or other after an avalanche. And then there was me and I'm like, well, I, you know, sliced avocados with my leather. <laughs> 
with my Leatherman. Um, so, um, so, but, but the, well, I forgot what I was talking about. Oh, so the, so I'm not that hardcore, but I do love being in the desert because it's like your imagination runs wild. You feel like it's a leveler. So, uh, it doesn't matter if you're rich, poor, ex-heroin addict or, you know, or gold medal winner or whatever, you know, it doesn't matter who you are. You have to obey certain laws of survival. And, um, it's just a playful place. And with a dirt bike like I had as well, it was just awesome. Um, so so those are definitely some highlights for me, yeah. Nice. And then obvious, what were the low points? <laughs> um, low points uh, had to be the, the, the injury. So not just – now, I, I crashed a couple of times, but they weren't really low points for me. Sometimes when things go wrong is when there's sort of exciting stuff happens and, you you know, uh, it, it's quick and it's done and it's over with. Um, I think mental health issues were probably the – you know, the downers um, after the highs were the big issues for me. But I, I did crash my bike in – um, well, in Patagonia, I got blown off by the wind, and then in, in, in Colombia, I got hit by a truck. But it, it sounds more more sort of dramatic than it was. I, I I got knocked off and and slid on my shoulder, and that caused some injuries. But over the the months that went on from there, I uh, I ended up with all these injuries, and and that was, I mean, I can remember being in the states. I'd run out of money as well by then, so I was trying to find ways to to earn money to to keep going and um one of the things i did i, I wrote for motorbike magazines and i did lots of talks i started uh, uh doing talks for people for, for groups and communities and anybody who'd sort of passed the helmet around at the end really and uh i can remember standing there in front of people showing them pictures and trying to sound really enthusiastic and going yeah it's awesome living on the road it's so cool and da da da, da and you should try it everybody should do this and then going back to my tent and sort of crying in pain and exhausted and it's just like for god's sake what are you doing to yourself but i just kept saying if i can just get to canada if i can just get to canada they'll look after me there you know um <laughs> so that, that was definitely a low point and, and it's weird so if you're having a bit of a downer in like I had a bit of a downer a mild sort of downer in um, Costa Rica now Costa Rica is like one of the most beautiful places in the world it's got it's got beautiful oceans beautiful jungle great wildlife I'm a big fan of wildlife and it's just cool but I had a bit of a downer whilst being at this turtle place helping volunteering there for a bit and I thought Wow, if I can be on a downer now, then if you're on a downer in Utopia, what hope, what hope have you got? It makes you even more down, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so, so you've you've got to try and sort of, um, and, and that I think comes from tiredness, and that's telling you something. It's just to, to chill out for a bit, you know, and and and, and just relax and, and not be too hard on yourself. Um, and, and so, yeah, so so it was the real downers were there was a lot of dramatic stuff happened, but the the low, the low bits were the were the times where I just felt tired or or, or miserable. So yeah, yeah. I mean, you. I guess you've sort of hinted at certain elements of it, but it sounds like when you say you know it took four years and you planned eighteen months. I guess did you just kind of you'd arrive somewhere like a turtle sanctuary and think ah, I'll stay here for a bit, you know? Or you weren't traveling every day. I wasn't traveling every day, but uh, but the, and there were places that I that I just decided to yeah just to stay for a, a couple of weeks or whatever. Um, I, I, there were places I wish now that I'd have stayed longer. 
Um, but as well, you're also fighting against the the bank balance. You know, you until you figure stuff out, you're thinking, oh, I've got to make sure I've got enough to get home. And of course, I didn't. I ended up running out of money a couple of times. But and then I adapted again. And so, so then I realized that, hmm, okay. I could have stayed there longer if I'd have, you know, um, but of course to, 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 like I started, like I said, I started making, doing presentations and earning money that way, but I could only do that in English speaking countries. So, um, yeah, I, I, I don't, I, I, that's my only regret really is that in certain places I wish I'd have, I'd have stayed longer and just, you know, learned a bit more. Again, it's a really obvious question, but like where? Well, um, Costa Rica is one of them. Uh, Colombia is another one. I absolutely loved Colombia and didn't see enough of it. Um, I raced through a few places. Um, oh, I tell you where I'd love to to stay longer is Ethiopia. Um the whole of Africa and continent, actually. I just, I'd love to to do more of it. And Australia as well. I, I, I went, I had to rush to get to my boat to get to Antarctica. And, um, but I had to cross Australia first and then get to South America and then go travel down and get to the boat. And so I had about eight weeks in Australia. Well, you could spend a year in Australia and, and, and you know, um, it's not one of my favorite places, but I would love to have circumnavigated it um, and, and seen a lot more of it. I think eight weeks was was a bit of a rush, really. Yeah, and it's funny, isn't it? It's the whole perception of time because eight weeks to play in Australia sounds like ages, you know, from a normal perspective. But when you're just on the road for an indefinite amount of time. Yeah, well, exactly. It's it's a big it's a big continent to cross, um, and a and a lot of uh, desert roads. And again, I found a lot of people said to me, "Oh, the Northern Territory is boring, boring. You you'll be bored stiff." I loved them because it's just like okay, not ideal for a biker. Long straight roads, you know. We want twisties generally, right? But it was long straight roads where again my imagination went crazy, and and there was nobody around to to see me playing and and being just completely whoever I wanted to be. And <laughs> or peeing wherever I wanted to pee, you know. But <laughs> given given that, and and um, they, there's like these. I don't know if you've been through there, but there's there's like the the termite hills often dressed up there for some reason. So you'll be driving along through the desert, not seeing anybody for, for hours and hours and hours, and then suddenly you see a figure in the distance, and you're like, "What? What's that? Who's who's just stood there in the desert?" And it's a termite hill that's got a t-shirt and a baseball cap on it. Or a bra, and uh, you know, or you know, the absolutely the weirdest thing. They've all got faces, and and I don't, I never really found out how that happened. I'm not sure anybody really understands how it started, but it, it looks like sort of bored road trippers. Somebody started it, and then it's sort of followed on from there, become a bit of a thing, um, and so so that was kind of cool. I, I stopped and and had a pee next to one, and and. Um, and uh, shared a cigarette with another one and, uh, <laughs> um, you know, and just it was it was great and did some filming. And I, I actually filmed myself on my bike riding and singing along and dancing on the bike to uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. 
And I put the camera, taped the camera to the bars and then filmed myself sort of no-handed riding along because it's a long straight road, didn't need my hands. So I'm just dancing along to this Bohemian Rhapsody and uh, just going slightly crazy because nobody can see me. And um, I, and I filmed it and I put it on uh, on YouTube or whatever. And somebody, a policeman from New South Wales put, uh, oh, riding with no hands, we are impressed, you know. <laughs> New South Wales, New South Wales police are impressed. And I, <laughs> I was like, well, I wasn't in New South Wales. So, you know, <laughs> nothing to see here. But um, yeah, it was, uh, it was a cool place. It's a cool place to play. <laughs> I kind of, I tend to like the places where there's, where there's few people, I think, you know. It sounds as well like it's a really cool way of traveling and a cool story because you know, and again, there's nothing wrong with this. I mean, I've made a career out of working on these things, but so many expeditions are kind of sponsored endeavors. You know, there's a big brand behind them. Um, there's media output required. It sounds like you kind of just went and you made do with what you could get your hands on. And it was all about you, right? Yeah, it, it really was. I mean, I, I, mean, I did I did get the bike from, from Honda, um, so so they did sponsor me in a way. And, um, but they actually gave me the bike having shut down my business that was sponsored by them. So, so uh, and, and I said to them, look, now I'm off around the world, actually. Can you give me one of your new bikes that had just come out? And, um, and I'll take it around the world and, you know, and I'll, I'll prove that it's a good bike or whatever. And they said, uh, they said, yeah, do you know what? Go for it. But, do you know what? If you decide you want to live in Goa for the rest of your life, um, then if you get to Goa and you decide you want to live there, then then don't worry about it. You don't owe us anything. And I'm like, really? And uh, I said, you want me to sign something or anything? And they were like, no, just go for it. And I wasn't sure if they were just trying to get rid of me or if <laughs> or if it was just a golden handshake kind of a thanks for all the hard work you've done over the last five years and off you go. And and they never they never requested anything from me. They they never complained about anything I did I don't even know if they were following what I was doing but um but yeah uh, so it genuinely genuinely was just all about me it was very very selfish and uh, very self-indulgent but I I had such a cool time you know I, I met so I just said a minute ago that I I loved the places where there weren't many people but actually you know the the people it surprised me how much the people uh was such a big part of it in the end. Um, I learned how sociable I could be. I learned to relax more with people. Like, I, I don't know, I think that was kind of forced upon me in a way. So people are so hospitable that they sort of drag you into their homes and and they determined to sort of force feed you and let you sleep there. And, and, and that's, I mean, it's wonderful because you learn about so much. You're not looking through a window at someone's culture. You're, you're, Metaphorically, I mean, I mean, you're 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 in their homes and you're and you're experiencing their lives and you're sharing parts of your story and sharing your culture that they may never get to otherwise experience and and your stories, your stories from Wales, you know, <laughs> and um, and uh, and and they, it became such a big part of of the journey. Um, I, I learned to be a better person through them, I think, um, through the way 
you know, they, they hosted me and I learned to be a better guest because I had to learn to relax and, and not be too overly polite and on guard, not on guard, but you know what I mean? Self-conscious and polite. I, I think I was always guilty of that maybe beforehand. And now I'm just who I am and that's it. Take it or leave it. And actually people accept that. And I think prefer having me around as just me being me. Um, and uh, and people were so giving and wonderful and, and friendly. And everyone was telling me, you know, that, that God, watch out for those people in the next you're going where? Those people will kill you, you know. But but we're okay here. We'll look after you. Um, but don't go that way. They'll kill you. And then I get that way and the same thing would happen again, you know. Um, and as a woman, of course, I had this um, occasionally in certain countries had the, this, I, I guess you would call it a misogyny sort of thing, you know, that they wanted to protect and I mean that's quite nice and actually it's quite you know you don't have to change your own oil when you're in those countries <laughs> it can misogyny can be your friend you know there's no <laughs> but sometimes you end up with like a police almost like a police escort where people are just too protective and you're like hey I got here on my own it's okay you know um, but it's an ingrained thing places like Sudan for example it was very uh, um I loved it. I, I made some very good friends there, but uh, I also had to sort of keep telling them, like, hey, back off. It's good. I've got this, you know? So, yeah. Yeah, it was something I actually hadn't thought to ask, which, you know, I suppose, well, I won't read too much into it, but how, how different was it? Or did you experience any problems traveling as a woman that you think you wouldn't have experienced as a man? Yeah, no, I think I think it's quite a healthy thing that you didn't think to ask. Uh, that, that's quite nice because, um, but but yeah, it's it's um, because I don't know I, the difference. I don't know. I've never done it as a guy, and that, that's my, you know, that that's. <laughs> so I, I'm not sat here comparing, um, but people do, and people are constantly asking me, but or saying, pointing out that I'm a woman. You know, um, of course there are differences. Uh, I'm sure. But I think as long as you've got the right attitude, you know, it's it's like with anything, as long as you've got a smile and a positive attitude or or whatever, then you're not going to do too badly. Um, I didn't get too many issues as far as um, men bothering me. I I had a couple of incidents. One one was in Turkey in a a tent where, uh, you know, the, the guy basically tried it on and and tried to get me very drunk and 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 I was doing that polite thing of you know trying not to antagonize and trying to keep it all polite and to the point where he was then trying to get me drunk and I um before you know yeah so he he kept giving me this this racky and and I kept pouring it to when he wasn't looking pouring it to one side so he was getting drunk and I wasn't into until he became quite malleable um and so when he eventually made his move I sort of just pushed him over and <laughs> and spoke to him like a naughty dog you know don't do that no <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, you know <laughs> I've kind of had worse in Wales you know and um I mean, I did sleep in my tent with my Leatherman in one hand that night and, and my, um, you know, I didn't put my podcast on. I usually listen to podcasts to go to sleep in my tent because it's drown out the, the, the scary noises outside. Um, but I, I kept it off that night and kept my Leatherman in my hand just in case he woke up and came back for another go. Um, I had one minor incident in, in 
Sudan, but again, it was uh, it was a trucker, and truckers were usually really cool with me. They they were always checking I was okay, make sure I had water. They'd slow down and thumbs up and and sort of oh, throw me water, or you know, it was good sharing the road. It was very cool. Um, there was one incident in the middle of the desert where uh, some trucker tried to drag me into his truck, and again. Um, it, it was. I pulled pulled out my Leatherman. So I see. I didn't just use it for avocado. There you go. I just realised. So uh, <laughs> you really so, didn't. Uh, I pulled out my Leatherman. Or pull, I really didn't. So I, I pulled it out. But it was. He had hold of one arm, and I had the Leatherman in the other arm, and and, and I needed the other hand to open the Leatherman and get the knife out if I was ever going to use it effectively. And of course, uh, you know, it was it was a bit a bit silly, really, but. Um, just pulling the Leatherman out was enough for him to kind of let go and and sort of, and I, I ended up shouting. And I rode off from that situation. We were on the long stretch of desert road and not a soul around and anything could have happened, but it didn't. And and I rode off and shouting at him and, you know, and um, partway down the road, I thought, do you know what? I'm really annoyed at that. Like he's made me feel so vulnerable and I, I wanted to go back and tell him off. <laughs> <laughs> I, thought, I thought you probably shouldn't do that, so I, I I put Skunk and Nancy on in my in my helmet instead, and just sort of danced my way to the next town on the bike, and and you know tried to forget about it. And, you know that that was it really. So very very few incidents, and I think there's a lot of cases where probably more cases where being a woman was helpful. Like I lost my paperwork at one border and uh, I don't know if I got, got away with more because I was a woman and they were like, oh, you, you know. Um, so, and people are instinctively protective. It's uh, men generally, it's built into them to to be protective of, of women and, and particularly in a lot of, it's just a natural thing for all men, I think. But, but um we almost try and dampen it down in 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 a, in a lot of countries, but uh, you know, old old boys in this country, for example, they want to hold the door open for you, and then they they have to apologise these days because they're like, oh, I'm I'm sorry, but this is the way I'm made. I need to open the door for you, and they're like, no, no, it's lovely, you know. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you off for it. It's a very confusing world to be in for a guy these days, but in a lot of these countries, it's not confusing at all. This is what we do. We are men. We look after you, women, and. Um, you know, it's. Uh, I think if you go out there, just sort of being accepting of that and an understanding of, of of the cultures, and it can be a wonderful thing, you know. And actually, as well, those places that you say, look, hey, I, I'm okay, I'm good, I've got this, and and um, and they do that. They they. they they honour that, you know. They don't look down on you for it. They're like, "Yeah, you go, girl." <laughs> so, so yeah. So, so very, very few issues with guys there, really. That sort of, I often think, you know, for every decent experience, there's always a bad one we can have, and like the world isn't Disneyland. You know, it's the real world, and it can be as scary and harrowing as it can be wonderful and inclusive and incredible but at the same time also it's so easy for us to carry our own ideals or ways of thinking to a different country and just expect everybody to think the same as us we can be as progressive or as thoughtful as we want but actually this gets into philosophy and we'll save it for a different day but who are we to suggest that people should live their lives in the way that we choose to live ours 
Absolutely. And there's a prime example of this um, is in Ethiopia. I went to a bull jumping ceremony and uh, got invited to a bull, this bull jumping ceremony, which is, uh, I don't know if you've heard of them, but it's basically as it sounds. So um, it's an entry to manhood. And um, I, I went and got taken to this tribal area, which is Omo Valley, which has got about 17 different tribes. It's a cultural sort of crossroads. And all these tribes sort of live generally in harmony together along this sort of river. Um, there's, a, there's a few tribal disputes now and again over the odd cow or, or whatever, but uh, or goat or whatever. But um, anyway, I went, got taken in there, went to watch this bull jumping ceremony. And um, the, the young man has to jump over a line of bulls and um, so, several times and then until he's told to stop. And that is his entry to manhood, that once he's achieved that, um, he can then have his wife and he can have his own herd of goats or whatever. But part of the ceremony, when I arrived, they're all up on a sort of a dried up riverbed and wearing sort of um, goat skin and, and stuff and, and painting each other up. There's a few guys with guns and um, and there's the women are dancing and, and there's some whippers uh, and they've got uh, sort of willow branches or something or whatever, um, which they use as whips. And they part of the ceremony is that they whip some of the women um uh I don't, I'm not quite sure why <laughs> but they whip some of the women and uh, uh, so there's two parts of this story one one is at one point I was um I was asked through a translator there was this guy stood next to me that he was one of the whippers and uh, he was gorgeous I mean a beautiful tribal man just like this dream godlike creature stood next to me you know and big brown eyes, just stunningly beautiful in this tribal gear, you know, in a loincloth. And 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 <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God, okay, I need to get a photograph of this guy. So I, I said, please ask him if I can take a photograph of him. And he said, oh, just take it. I said, no, 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 just I want to get quite close. I don't want to be intrusive. And I already felt like I was intruding. And so anyway, this this guy says through the translator, deadpan face, he just looks and he says, only if I can whip you and deadpan face and I went um and I, <laughs> I thought well he's pretty good looking you know, I might be up for this and then, and, then he, and then the translator said he's joking and I was like yeah yeah I, I knew I knew that and so <laughs> and so I lo- a I love the fact that his sense of humor was so dry and brilliant and he just sort of smirked after afterwards you know um and then he let me take the picture but those whippers then got so suddenly there's there's music and dancing and, and bells going off and these women come sort of charging and uh, stamping their feet in the dust around the corner and they start harassing the whippers to whip them. And so it's not the other way around. The women are going, come on, whip me, whip me. And they're fighting each other to say, whip me, whip me. And then eventually the whipper chooses the woman and she stands stock still, not blinking, not making a sound, uh, with her arm up in the air and he whips her back and her front with this willow branch and just a very thin, if you can imagine, like, you know, it's a bit like a, a leather whip or something and um, and just whips her with it to the point where it breaks skin and draws blood. And um, I wish I could show you some photographs because it's just, it's like, wow. And the only noise was the sound of the whip and me going, oh, you know, I was like, geez, this is crazy. But what I realized was, A, 
you know, these women were doing it because later on, um, when times are, this is how the translator described it to me, is that when times are hard and, and they might have fallen on hard times, wherever they might be hungry, they can go back to that guy and say, hey, I took to the guy whose ceremony it was and say, look, I took this for you. Show him the scars and remind him that he, you know, she she took that for him and to share some of his stuff. And that's how he described it. Whether that's from some old ancient times or whatever, I don't know. But these women were still being whipped and they were beating themselves up to, to get there, to, to be the one chosen. And I think it's a bit like some... You know, uh, you know, it's a it's a prize thing, and they were putting dirt into the scar, into the wounds, to create bigger scars, to to make sure the scars were prominent on their backs for for later. Uh, and I think you know, it's maybe like us having tattoos or something. And you know, we don't we don't even get a goat at the end of it. You know, we go through that pain, and we. <laughs> We don't even get a goat. So yeah, I, I can understand that. And yet it's very it'd be very easy to step in as a as a Western woman and say, hey, this is wrong. Now there there's there's a lot of depth to that, I'm sure. Maybe there's, you know, the history is that they, they believe they've got to do that or, or whatever. But it's not for us to jump in and rescue somebody who hasn't asked to be rescued, if you know what I mean. Um I think it's very. We, I think we do that a lot. We can be quite arrogant. So yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly it. I bang on. I think just think um, we can discuss this stuff, you know, now or privately or otherwise. But I think people immediately jump to some people. I should say, you know, some people just jump to anger straight away and jump to judgment. And actually, why don't we all think about this? Why don't we talk about it? But you know, intervention because we think we know best is a dangerous, dangerous thing. Um, it, it really is, and and, uh, and so social. Sorry, we had a delay there. Carry on. I was just going to say it gets heavy quickly, doesn't it? <laughs> but go on. <laughs> it, it, no, it does, and and that's it. But but that's it, the this the thing with social media and stuff as well these days, isn't it? Is that 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 can um, it, it set it. It it creates that divide more, and I was watching that that social dilemma thing the other day, which highlighted it even more. That it surrounds you with people who have the same opinion, and therefore it makes you louder and more more opinionated either way. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's um, yeah. I think we all we should all travel is the healthiest thing for the mind. I think. <laughs> well, funny you should say that. I was just about to say so. Not just um, not just the women that we've just been talking about, but everything we've discussed over the last hour or so. What's the moral of the story? Oh, wow. Good question. Um, oh, well, yeah, travel is uh, is healthy for the mind. Um, I, I think the... Uh, I think it's possible to, regardless of the barriers that see, appear in front of you or how deep the hole that you're in, um, it's possible to claw your way out and, uh, and 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 chase your dreams regardless. I mean, that might sound a bit corny, but it's so true. You know, I think if you have, if you, it's like eating that elephant, you know, it's like you've got to take one bite at a time and it might seem completely ridiculous idea. There's no way I could eat that whole elephant. But if I just take one bite and just get moving on it, 
Um, and and eventually, before you know it, you're there and you're at the last little toe, you know, and and you've made it. And uh, you know, it, hey, if I can if I can achieve something, uh, and I'm you know I didn't I didn't save lives or or uh, or do anything heroic. I went on a totally selfish journey, but it was my dream and um, one that I believed was impossible for a long time. And 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 hey, I, I made it there in the end. And uh, I, I guess that's it. Really, is that uh, there, there's always it's hope for us all. <laughs> That's a nice thought. There's hope for us all. Yeah. No, I, I like that a lot. Cool. Um, I always ask two cheesy questions at the end. Um, so I will. Um, what scares you? Oh, what scares me? Um, well, heights scares me. <laughs> Not very good with heights. I'm rubbish with heights. Um, but uh, I guess um, oh, I, I don't know. I, I could go really deep here, I suppose. But uh, uh, not being able to. Um, being locked down basically scares me. You know, it's being. being in that position where you can't go and, and have that fresh air and, and um, I, I don't like locked doors. <laughs> so lockdown itself has been quite difficult for me, um, but thankfully I live in a beautiful part of the world, as I might have mentioned, and uh, I have dogs and I have a forest tree nearby and, and I can legally go and walk in the forest with my dogs and get, get that fresh air and um, yeah. I think that's understandable, it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> um and what brings you hope people bring me hope when when they you see the acts of kindness you know just just when you feel like what's the point um and the, you know the world the world is fucked because you see something on facebook or you see something on the news or and then you get a a little message from your friend or who's remembered about you and suddenly thought to check in that you're okay and um or you see that little act of kindness or that little you know it's just you know somebody like that little boy who was camping in the in his back garden since the beginning of the pandemic or whatever and he's been camping there raising money every single night it's got cold now and he's still there camping every night in his parents back garden he's only like 12 or something that those little stories that that brings me hope i think there is there is hope for us yet nice right on that positive note i guess we'll leave it there Thanks for listening. For more information, visit theadventurepodcast.co.uk. The podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft and is produced and distributed by Pip Saunders and Alex Hall. It's edited by Kate Bullivant. If you want to get in touch, to just say hello or to make a guest recommendation, then you can email us at info at And you can stay in touch, join the conversation and stay up to date on Instagram at theadventurepodcast.com.